This episode originally had us using the entire talk from Alain de Botton's uh, TED Talk, uh, Atheism 2.0, and it ended up getting uh, flagged on YouTube because we were adding commentary to essentially all of it. So what you're going to hear today is a revised version where where the sound clips are, it is a condensed part of the sound clip that gets right to the heart of what he was talking about. And then our commentary will address the entire section from Elaine de Baton's uh, talk. So now uh, to the Almost Awakened episode. This is the Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Hey, hey, how are you? Hi, Bill. What's, I am good. Uh, what's new and exciting? Uh, I was out for spring break, so I missed you guys. Uh, I missed you guys last week, but Bill did a great podcast on it, doing uh, with Amanda. So I really encourage <laughs> everyone to listen to that one. And I was out for spring break with my kiddos, and just I'm so excited for to for today's conversation. I'm getting over a cold a little bit, so I apologize for that, but I am too excited for today's material to give it a sick day. So bear with me as we get through it. I'm really, really excited for today's material. We uh, we thought we'd start off for just a minute talking about a little bit of a current event. So this week, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock, and uh, I kind of put out to you like, hey, could we maybe spend a couple minutes on this? Um, I don't, I don't know if I, I guess I'd love to get your thoughts first, if you'd like, and then I'll chime in with a few things and then we'll go from there. Yeah. Like anyone who spends too much time on the internet, I've been enjoying the memes and this, and the discussion around when and when it's when or when not, is it appropriate, um, to defend in that way. Right. Mm -hmm. And I still, Maybe it's just because I'm a pacifist, but I, I still really leaned on that there were a lot of other options. You know, you can walk up and take the mic and say, hey, alopecia isn't funny. And that would be a great way to raise awareness about something um, without because now all the discussion is about um, is about the punch instead of what it should be, which is that was crossing the line. And that's not funny to make fun of someone's condition like that. Um, I appreciate that both Chris Rock and Will Smith have apologized for their piece. You know, Chris said it was too far. Will said that he was emotional and he shouldn't have done that. And, um, you know, I'm still of the, the opinion that there were quite a few other options before you resort to violence. And that's probably just because as I'm a historian, when you watch, if, if people can have an opportunity to communicate, then you can keep the violence down. When the communication dies, that's when you can only communicate with violence. And I think there were still other options. Yeah. But I do really love, separate from that, I really love Gina Colvin, God bless her, um, <laughs> brought up 
brought up the uh, question of, is it hot though? And I do think that that's a separate discussion. There's a difference between was it right and wrong, which is like kind of like our logic part of the brain. What are the ethics around this and that discussion? And is it hot? <laughs> those are two different things. So I think you can have an, a different opinion for both of those. And I think Gina, I don't know if she thinks it was right or wrong, but she definitely thought it was hot. And I think that that is probably one of my most favorite comments about the situation. Anyway, what do you think? Yeah. It brings in a lot. So there are matters of privilege, and this may sound really strange. I, I don't mean to come off as being offensive or anything, but I think in this situation, them being uh, African-American actually gave them a little bit of privilege in the situation. Had a white guy been involved, that would have been a very different conversation. Had there been a woman telling the joke in the per man in the crowd or a man telling the joke and a woman in the crowd, it would have changed things. But the fact that they were both people of color, I think, made it a little different. Uh, just in the same way if it had been two females or two white men or you know whatever that be. Um, it, there brings in conversations about humor. What's appropriate humor? And I often, I, I'm a joker. If you were to hang around me at a party, I'm always looking for the next fast one line to throw out that people then go like, oh, that's a different way to use that word. And ha ha ha, like I never thought of it that way. I'm always looking for those. And I really try hard. I'm not perfect at it, but I try really hard to make jokes that have us all being aware of our own kind of weird collective humanity. Like you may do a weird thing, but haha, ha, we all do a similar thing. It's just different. Mm -hmm. But when you isolate somebody's pain and you mock it, and that's very much what was going on in that moment, mm -hmm. you don't know people's journeys, their stories. You don't know their traumas. You really ought to stay away from shining a light on a specific individual's hard thing. No one wants to feel like they're in the middle of a circle and everyone around them is pointing a finger at them and laughing. Um, so I tend to really think of humor very intellectually and I try to stay in certain tracks and stay away from certain tracks when, yeah. when telling jokes. I really like what Ricky Gervais says about this. Cause he's one of those who really thinks about comedy, like thinks intellectually about comedy. And, you know, he gets a lot of pushback because he'll talk about, uh, terrible things, you know, cancer or rape or but he's not ever, like you say, making fun of the person's individual experience. So he has a joke where he says, a woman comes into a police department and says, I've been raped. And they say, do you mean raped? And she says, no, it was a bunch of them. And the joke is, the joke is, it's not making fun of one person's experience with rape. It's a it's a wordplay joke, right? Yeah. And so he talks about it that way. But I think it's what is different with these like Golden Globe and Oscar kind of things is that the comedian is being paid to roast the celebrities for the people watching at home, which is a different dynamic, right? The comedian's not there for the celebrities. He's there to make fun of the celebrities for us. And so that, you know, do, does he deserve to be punched for that? You know, he's kind of doing his job in that way. I, I don't know. There's a lot, yeah. there's a lot there to talk about. There, there is. And uh, I, I will say I, um, I've been part of experiences in life where somebody close to me that I care about was deeply mistreated without it being physically violent. And I, I noticed that over the course of years, that particular experience for that person and for me having been there and witnessed it, 
it it carried trauma and hurt and stuff to work through years into the future. Uh, and to the point where it even kind of came back and kind of bit the both of us in the butt later on. And we often go like, oh, you know, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And I actually deeply believe that words can hurt a human being far further than a slap in the face. Yeah. Therapists don't say, don't say that phrase, you know? Yeah. Therapists don't say that phrase. At least they don't anymore. Yeah. Trauma is yeah, real. Is, and most trauma yeah. is linked to conversation, language, things said as much as people physically being unhealthy in a, in a shared space. Yeah. Lots of interesting things to talk about, but not our subject for today. No, unfortunately. No, no, no. Yep. So let's, uh, let's move on. You've got, uh, you've got a great episode planned. I am so excited. So I am sharing with you all today. This is, this feels like, you know, when you have like a favorite movie or a favorite song and you're sharing it with your friends and you really hope they like it because it's your very favorite I'm sharing today my very favorite TED Talk. And because it's really short, it's only about 14 minutes long, what Bill and I are going to do. And he packs so much into, um, because he's really trying to squish down these really big ideas into a short amount of time. We're going to listen to it about a, a minute or two at a time and then talk about it and break it down. Because I think it's one of the most important discussions going on in, in this field. So what I have today is the TED Talk by um, Elaine de Baton, and uh, the talk is called Atheism 2.0, and it's a really popular discussion for this kind of uh, post-religious, secular spirituality kind of space, and it really talks about what you and I are always trying to do, which is kind of taking the baby of spirituality out of the bathwater of religion. And so we're just going to break it down kind of minute by minute and then and then talk about it because he packs a lot into this. It's worth kind of stopping and pausing and processing what he just said. Um, and I think it's going to be really beneficial for the people in this space. It's my very favorite TED Talk, so it's going to be great. Cool. I'll put it up on the screen. And are you ready to start? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I'm just going to move something so I can see the buttons. One of the most common ways you can hear that right? the world is into those who believe and those who don't, into the religious and the atheists. There have been some very vocal atheists who've pointed out not just that religion is wrong, but that it's ridiculous. What I'd like to inaugurate today is a new way of being an atheist. If you like, a new version of atheism we could call Atheism 2.0. Of course there's no God. Of course there are no deities or supernatural uh, spirits or angels, etc. That's not the end of the story. That's the very, very beginning. I can't believe in any of this stuff. I can't believe in the doctrines. I don't think these doctrines are right, but people who are attracted to the ritualistic side, the moralistic communal side of religion, but can't bear the doctrine. Okay. So what's really is interesting there <clears throat> is that we're getting out of the debate of uh, is God real or real or not? Or, you know, what is ultimate reality or not? Because we can sometimes just really get sucked into those conversations and feel like we have to pick a side. So where this conversation starts is, is okay, let's just assume there's nothing supernatural going on. What next? Right. And so the really interesting thing about his life, uh, which he doesn't talk about in the TED talk, is that he was raised by two secular parents um, that didn't do any supernatural, anything with him. And on our podcast, most of our guests were raised in some kind of faith. 
had some kind of transition and are doing some kind of post-religious spirituality. That's what most of our guests are at. But what's interesting about his journey is that he came at it from the other side. So he was raised by secular parents um, and kind of at the age, you know, at 25 or whatever, he had a crisis of faithlessness, which is different than a crisis of faith, where you just kind of stand back and says, what, what is the point of all of this? What is the meaning of all of this, right? And so what he's talking about here is kind of coming out spirituality from the other direction with the assumption that there's nothing supernatural going on, but that religions have been successful for so long and are giving us such benefits. How can we get at those things um, without betraying, you know, he was raised secular. He's never had an experience that he related to God in any way. His brain was just never really set up for that kind of experience. And so what do you do then next? I think that that's really interesting. Thoughts? Yeah, just that the conversation now dives into because, again, I think you, me, and others are going that are listening are going to absolutely agree. Like religion proclaims to have the answers or solutions for who God is and how we get back to Him, and that we all go like that's just bunk. But the reality of what does myth do? What is it? What does it help? generation from generation, what does it supply that allows each generation to continue on and to perpetuate it? Myth is a great place to um, insert truths and to insert technology that society, a society or tribe needs to continue. Mm. So this, I love this discussion, which sometimes with atheism, it, all you do is kind of combat, of course, God is ridiculous, and then you just stop there, Yeah. Um, which is why, I mean, atheism is a very new religion. It's a very new way of thinking. We don't have any ritual where atheists around the world gather one day and do something, right? Yeah. So it's very still um, young in its own way uh, in thinking that all we have to do is deny God and we'll live the good life. Well, there's actually quite a big gap between those two things that we're learning and having to piece together here. Okay. You ready to continue? Yeah. Until now, these people have faced rather an unpleasant choice. It's almost as though either you accept the doctrine uh, and then you can have all the nice stuff or you reject the doctrine and you're living in a sort of spiritual wasteland under the guidance of CNN and Walmart. I think there are ways, and I'm being both very respectful and completely impious of stealing from religions. If you don't believe in a religion, there's nothing wrong with picking and mixing, with taking out the best sides of religion, going through religions and saying, what here could we use? The secular world is full of holes. We have secularized badly. Thorough study of religion can give us all sorts of insights into areas of life that are not going too well. And I'd like to run through a few of these today. Yeah, we'll stop there before we go into education. So what I really liked that he talked about there was um, how we're seeing in and out thinking both in the religious world and in the post-religious world, which is something that it took a while for us to kind of notice. And I've in in Mormonism, for example, it, it, it took a while. But then after a while, we began to realize that kind of the ex-Mormon group and ex-Mormon Reddit they were acting kind of like a religion, right? There's certain truths, there's certain things you say, there's certain things that you don't say. 
there's there's an in-group, there's an out-group, there's people we make fun of, there are leaders and prophets that we all like to listen to and things that we make fun of, right? And then it started kind of acting like a religion. And so what happens, the, the people who most pay that price is the kids, because what happens to the kids is they have two options. They could go into religion and they get all the dogma and they get all the religious baggage and all of that but they at least get some kind of moral education, some kind of community. Or the other choice is that you don't give them anything because you're not participating in spirituality in any way. <clears throat> and you and then you give them a smartphone so that they're constantly being marketed to, right? And then we wonder why the kids are so anxious and unhappy and depressed and don't know who they are and really want to have meaning and purpose in their lives and have no way to get it. And this huge spiritual crisis that's going on for, for Generation Z because we've given them only these two choices. Are you in or are you out? And what I really like about what he's doing here is carving out a third way, a middle way, which is saying that we have to pull out what was positive about religion or else all that we're giving ourselves and our kids is marketing is consumerism. And that is a pretty empty replacement for religion. If I had to choose between putting my kids in a religion and just giving them consumerism, I would choose to put them in a religion because at least they would get to hear some kind of story that may pull on their heartstrings and make them want to be a better person. Yeah. Um, anyway, what, thoughts? What I, what I love that he's about to do because it feels on the on the on on the front of it, it feels like an either or. Like I either got to take religion or I got to take something that's not religion, and I have to live with what all that looks like. And and he's about to explain, and I think he does a great job of hitting on all these major concepts that you go like, oh my goodness, you're right. Religion religion has a way of transferring that technology or that uh, mechanism forward so that we can benefit from it and it was clear to me after listening to this talk the first time, and I've listened to it two or three times at this point, listening to it the first time, it became very clear to me that um, religion really does give us things that help us as human tribes and societies to function. And while it has tons of unhealthy things, the cool thing about not believing in God um, is that you can just pick and choose what pieces work and hang on to and the pieces that don't discard but you're right. We got to find a way to take these concepts he's about to go into and figure out how to put them into a secular ideology, essentially some secular processes and uh, frameworks that we can um, hand down to our children and they can easily hand down to theirs. Oh, you're Yeah. Muted. Yeah. Let me do one more comment here. I, I think um, the hard pill to swallow for the post-religious community is that there are some things that are going to be more difficult to do intentionally. So for example, so this person here says religion was designed to control people and absolutely fear and control are great motivators. So if you give someone a concept of hell and say, if you do this, you're going to hell, but if you do this, you're going to heaven. <clears throat> so really strong motivators. Those are really strong behavioral motivators. But the hard pill to swallow is that when you take that away, at first it's really freeing, but then after that, and I'm seeing this as I'm coaching people, is that after that kind of first breath of freedom, it can be really scary because then 
uh, building a concept of right and wrong and having a sense of morality and something that you're shooting for and, you know, your lesser nature that you're trying to get away from, you have to build that yourself, right? And so it's really, uh, so we look at something like tithing, it's really hard to pay 10% of your income. And then when you find out that it's maybe not going to what you want it to go, it's really freeing to have all that money back, right? Um, but then, but then to give yourself, you know, to, to use money from your privilege to give to others who are less fortunate, that's really hard to do when you don't have the fear of hell motivating your behavior. That's hard to do. Now you have to intentionally do all these things that were somewhat easy when you were more controlled, as this person says. And so that's the hard pill to swallow, that if you're going to leave religion, yes, there's things that are really freeing. But that means that you have to you have to do all these things yourself. And because of where we are in human history, there's maybe not a ton of support for that. And that's hard. And that's hard meaningful but really hard and i think that's a hard pill to swallow Mm, good stuff okay we'll continue we think education that's where we put a lot of money education is going to give us not only commercial skills industrial skills it's also going to make us better people your thoughts there i mean education if you don't mind me me jumping in first education uh, when i look at the scriptures i was raised um in a christian denomination for what that's worth and uh there are rules. There are stories that we tell over and over about how we should treat each other. There are, there, there is an education that's in there about how people work together and what's the right thing to do. And the stories have, um, they're more than just telling, as he's pointing out, they're more than just telling information. They're, they're suggesting like, here's a right way and here's a wrong way. And, uh, Without religion, it is going to be interesting to see as religion declines whether the human population can adapt to that and still have some sort of what we would collectively say is a really good morality. Um, The scriptures certainly are a vehicle to transfer information that educates us, and um, we don't really have a way to replace that. I, I was talking to my wife the other day. The, the just the school system the the k through 12 you know that's a modern invention at some point humans didn't have that and at some point we humans went hey there's a bare line basic amount of information we need to pass along to the next generation we need to transfer this stuff so that they have a good ground to start off on and we don't lose the very things that help us at a very basic level to function and i think religion did much of that same thing it gave us the very basic tools of a tribal society to work out our conflicts, to work out um, knowing who our enemies were if we happened to be away from them for a generation or two. Uh, it gave us a way to to know up from down in the world around us. Yeah, <clears throat> those are really good points. Um, so this, it really raises the question like you're talking about, uh, is how do we learn how to live when religions die? So what happened with the secularization in the United States? Now, Western Europe is a little ahead of us. They um, deconstructed from religion earlier than us, mostly because of World War One and World War Two, and people just kind of experienced that and said, where is God in all of this? So they, they started that process earlier. 
But in the United States, we, we really came to this decision that uh, spiritual health, you know, mindfulness, emotional health, how to live, how to have good relationships, how to be happy. Those are things that are done privately. And so for a while, that was fine because most people went to church and got something from church. But now what has happened is because churches are dying uh, and church attendance is now less than 50% in America, we have this weird thing where we secularized without religion and we put all that stuff onto religion and then religion is dying. And now there's no way for the average 18 year old kid to really answer questions about how to live. Like, how do I sort out all of this mess, right? Um, and one of the interesting things that, uh, that colleges are doing now is they're learning that, wow, these students, they're not just robots that just need, like he's saying, that just need more and more information. They do better if they have some basic knowledge on how to be happy. So Yale, and now a lot of other colleges are doing this too. There was a Yale professor. Um, her name is Lori Santos. She's very famous now. And she witnessed kind of depression, anxiety, and stress in her students. And she realized that she just keeps helping these students, but it's not with the material. These are Yale students. They're bright kids, right? Um, she, but they're, they're dying because they've had no help on just how to live. And so she creates this course in 2018 called the Happiness Course. It's the science of being happy. And it becomes Yale's most popular class in over 300 years. Uh, and then the coronavirus comes. And so they put it online. And now millions of people have taken this Yale course on the science of how to be happy. And what this shows is kind of where we are in our society, where, we, where we've secularized badly. We've put everything on religion. Religion's dying. There's no one talking about how to be happy. Um, and so some of the other, some of the colleges, especially some of the leading colleges are reversing that and saying, hey, if our students are going to be successful, we need to help them with some emotional tools so they're not having panic attacks from the stress, right? And um, so I just think it's really interesting. We're learning that this idea that we're just going to learn how to do the good life on our own and in private is a really bad idea because we're, we're social creatures. We have to learn this in community with each other because we're just bad at the concept of what is the good life. I mean, where do you even start if you're just a person by yourself? Mm, interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think as you're pointing out, information isn't enough. People need, people need a way of doing things. People need to know what works. It's not just data. It's, it's really learning how to interact with each other and to be respectful of each other, to understand boundaries. There's so much that goes into it that, um, yeah, it's just not enough to just give people a textbook. I would love like a hundred years from now that at my local YMCA, at YMCA, they have stuff for kids, they have childcare, they have classes for old people for fall prevention. And they have, they have so many things for a, a wide variety of health and wellness, right? And I really think if we're going to do this right, that 100 years from now, you could go to your local YMCA and take a class on the science of happiness, take a class on mindfulness, take a class on uh, emotional intelligence and regulation, that that would just become part of the culture 
that part of wellness is is spirituality and you can go to these kind of ymca local kind of places another thing is someone asked me one time how would i know that my work in the world is done and that was such a good question and i thought about it and i said i think I think I would know that we've made it if someone on a first date, if you're on a first date, you're kind of asking what you like to do and what you like to eat and what kind of movies you like. But rarely on a first date would you get a question like, um, what's your spiritual life like? What do you do for spirituality? Right. And I think if people, if everyone could just answer that question, oh, I, I take walks out in nature once in a while, or I really like human conversation and I, whatever it is. I really like to read Brene Brown. That really reminds, that connects me to my deeper self and reminds me to better be a better person without having it to be, you know, that question, it gets really touchy because then it's like, what religion are you from? And all these things, but just the recognition that we all need some kind of spirituality in our lives. Um, that would be a huge, a huge way of showing that we've come a long way. Um, yeah, just where do we go? Where do we go to learn how to live when religions die? That's such an important, it really is one of the most important questions of our age. I'm in a classroom, tell them about Plato at the age of 20, send them out into a career in management consultancy for 40 years, and that lesson will stick with them. Religions go nonsense. You need to keep repeating the lesson 10 times a day. So get on your knees and repeat it. That's what all religions tell us. Okay, so rituals, this or repetition and rituals. This one's so important because like we were talking about earlier, um, if you don't fear hell anymore, then maybe you'll feel like, oh, I don't have to pray five times a day. So when you go to like a, a Muslim country, it's really beautiful. You'll, you'll be out in the market and you're buying things. Then all of a sudden there's a call to prayer and everyone stops. Even, even if you're in the middle of a transaction, you, you grab hands with that person that you were just talking to and you go and you face Mecca and you and you kneel down and pray. And it's actually I think it's actually really beautiful. I can't I don't do it when I'm there uh, because it it's not a, a God that I worship. But I think it's really beautiful that, you know, they stop five times a day, no matter who they're with, no matter where they are, to focus on what's most important. Um when I'm in Thailand, a, a Buddhist country, they, they built this giant statue of Buddha. It's the biggest thing of Buddha I've ever seen. It's, it's massive. And I asked some local people, you know, why, why are you putting all of your money, all the city's money into a giant Buddha? And they said, you know, uh, if you can always see Buddha wherever you are in this city, you'll maybe remember to, um, to do better in your actions, to make better choices. So religions have this thing with repetition. Now, if you don't believe that, you know, Buddha has escaped into nirvana or that the Quran is the true word of God, then you feel like, oh, I don't have to do those things. But then what you're missing out on is a regular routine in your life that calls you back to yourself and your deepest values, which is actually really healthy and a really great way to live. And then what you have to do then is do the intentional work to create your own kind of repetition in your life, whatever that may be, and kind of almost be religious about it, right? <laughs> so um, some for some people, it's a meditation practice, or it's reading, or it's watching a TED Talk once a week, or whatever it is that connects you to your deepest self and your values. You actually have to do that work now on your own, since you don't fear hell anymore, which is hard to do, but something that 
would help you in a way that uh in a way that religions was helpful in that way what do you think yeah i just i think people will hear this on the front end and they'll go like come on i don't really need to repeat things but it really is crucial um the books that I've fallen in love with, I've gone back and read multiple times. And every time I've read it, there have been significant reminders of what it was I wanted to carry with me through my life that I wasn't because I just forgot about what was all in the book. And religion does this thing where it convinces us to repeat things over and over and to see that as valuable. And the rest of the world doesn't do that. I mean, pick your favorite movie and how many times have you seen it? Um, most people I think would say maybe they've seen it two, three, four times and that's it. Whereas in religion, you consistently come back to the same story over and over and over again. And there is value in that. And we're not, we're not maximizing our ability to learn new things and not just learn them, but become competent at them without the repetition of learning those concepts over and over. And so religion has this concept down in secular society hasn't yet created mechanisms for this. Yeah, I'm reminded by a friend of mine who is uh, very orthodox. So like our belief systems do not line up at all. But what I really admire about him is every day he reads what he would call the word of God, right? So even if he, we went on a river rafting trip and he had photocopied the scriptures and put it in his jacket and sealed it with like a Ziploc bag so it was water safe so that he could stay on track with this ritual of reading the word of God every day, right? Now, for me, I wouldn't call that the word of God. And so I feel like I don't need to go, go to that extreme measure. But what I love about him is, is the practice of every week as he's, you know, taking the Eucharist or taking the sacrament, he's reviewing um, how he did that week as a person and what he can improve. And he's reading, con he has this ritual of, of, of prayer and quiet time and, and reading holy books, right? Now, I may not believe all that goes into that and the orthodoxy and the faith that goes into that, but just for pure human discipline, what it did for him as a person, it really kind of helped him to be a better person because he's continually calling back to how are my behaviors not lining up to the virtue that I believe in. And that over time actually really changed him to quite a beautiful person. And so we have to somehow extract what he's doing, which is a, re a repetition in his life that's constantly bringing him uh, in contact with his highest values and virtues. We have to extract that out from the doctrine and the dogma that I just can't, I just can't relate to anymore. We have to find ways to do that. And that's, it's hard, but um, I think it's a part of living what we would call the good life. Imagine if we sat down every three or four months and we revisited Brene Brown's um, best thoughts on vulnerability and shame. Imagine if we got together and listened to a talk from Alan Watts, twice a year and, and had a chance to sit in a room with other people and to talk about it. And imagine if we did the same thing with um, uh, Richard Rohr or Ram Dass or, you know, you name it. Um, there would be deep value if, if those things were the best of things selected. Again, the trouble is religion decided what the best things were and we disagree. And there's, it's a mixed bag. 
And so you'd have to figure out some way that we really do collectively pick out the best stuff. But if we sat with those things and repeatedly went over them, people would understand those concepts proficiently by the time, you know, they were functioning 35 year old adults. And, and that really is, I think the goal that he's pointing at is how do we get adults to be high functioning, responsible, productive citizens to understand concepts of humanity and um, repetition is part of that formula. Yeah. And it reminds me of the great conversation that we had with Bart Campolo because I was asking him these questions because he's very much a part of this world. And, you know, I was talking to him, what do we do for rituals? What do we do for scripture? Are you using the scriptures and just kind of rebranding it? Um, and I loved his answer, which he, he talked about, you know, that uh, Christianity had 2000 years to get from where it started to where it is today. And all of those what we would call, you know, the scriptures went through a huge process to get there of what's in and what's out and what books are going to be in and what ones are going to be out and how do we translate it and all that kind of stuff. And so the process of doing this for the secular world, we're just at the very beginning of this. Like we, he, and what his answer was, you know, I think Darwin is going to be in this secular kind of scripture that we're building um, and we've kind of just started this process. And so gathering scripture of, you know, everyone needs to read these things or we need to revisit these ideas multiple times. What those are, we are doing that work now, today. We're starting that process now. And so it's it's a, it's scary, but it's a, an exciting process to be a part of because um, because it really is new. What deserves to be revisited many times in secular spirituality, that that's new stuff. Yeah. Imagine a textbook. Imagine we used a textbook every year that had, you know, 150 chapters. And there was a chapter with Brene Brown and a chapter with Eckhart Tolle and a chapter with um, Sam Harris and a chapter with, you know, and again, it would be a matter of taking the wisest among us and uh, creating what that collective group thinks is the best things for humanity to, to, progress yeah. and to grow and to move on. And imagine traveling to another place and knowing that you can get the Brene Brown lesson that week in yeah. that new place. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're talking about someday trying to build. We're trying to to do this because uh, religions, whether or not they are capital T true, they were at least successful, right? We've always yeah. had them since the beginning uh, of humanity, really. And so we have to try to pull this out of orthodoxy. All right, keep going. What is a calendar? A calendar is a way of making sure that across the year, you will bump into certain very important ideas. In the secular world, we think if an idea is important, I'll bump into it. I'll just come across it. Nonsense, says the religious uh, uh, worldview. Rigid worldview says we need calendars. We need to structure time. We need to synchronize encounters. So there is this idea of um, being directed by, again, as said, calendar rituals, but being directed to look at out outside of you and look at the universe around you and to sit for a moment and meditate upon the awe of all that is in space. And I, I think there's so much that's going on there that to, to recognize you're all by yourself in this universe, to recognize also how miraculous it is, how interconnected you are at the same time that I'm saying you're alone. It There's so much that comes from being in awe of the universe that nudges me to be something more and to be better. And he's really trying to capture that. 
Yeah, what I like is, um, and there's a comment over here on the side of, of a listener who says he's, he's feeling pretty lost right now. And I think what we have to remember is that when you look at something like the Jewish calendar, which is really our most extensive liturgical calendar, every three days there's something to do or remember. Um, and so when you're leaving kind of a liturgical calendar, which can be very helpful in reminding you of certain things, um, it can be really overwhelming to feel like you have to replace that on your own. And so I think where we have to start is to just choose one thing. This one time a year, I'm going to go out and look at the moon or the stars or whatever it is that gives you that feeling of, wow, it's really amazing to be alive on this flying rock through the universe, right? So um, we don't have to replace, you know, it took religion thousands of years to develop their liturgical calendars. And so it's okay to just start with one thing, just one kind of ritual that brings you back to um, whatever your sense of spirituality is. So whenever I have these kinds of discussions with, you know, religious scholars or conferences, we always look to the leader in the space is the secular Jewish community. So there's this spectrum of religion and sometimes when you go to these religious conferences, they'll actually separate you out into these religious kind of markers. Um, and in the spectrum of religion, there's pure fundamentalism on one side. And on the very other side is just kind of your loosest, whatever kind of religion. And so on this end, you'll have people like the Amish or the FLDS or Orthodox Judaism, where if you don't show these markers of behavior, uh, you are totally shunned from the society. You lose everything. They will ne Your mother will never talk to you again, that kind of behavior. And then the next line over is stuff like, you know, Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh-day Adventists, Mormons, that they're not Amish, but you still have a lot of markers of behavior that you have to follow in order to be uh, successful or to be accepted. And then you have, you know, Catholics and Protestants, certain Catholic and Protestant sects where you um, can go to church on Easter and Christmas and still be a good Christian. So not a lot of markers of behavior that you have to do all the way down into modern uh, Judaism. And what Judaism has been able to do, partly because it's just been around so long and it's the oldest, um, except for maybe Hinduism, is that it it's let go of the truth claims slowly in order to really stay alive in the past 5,000 years. But it's kept the rituals and the language and the community. So you can be an atheist rabbi, and this is really popular in places like New York City. Um, and so the blessing there is that you can have a child raised as a secular Jew with all the belonging of community, all the food and the music and the language and the rituals and all those things. And you don't, and you are more or less free to believe what you want to believe. You are even free to not believe in God. And so it's really, I really love watching how secular Judaism has been able to do that because they really lead the way in some of these discussions. But if you're feeling overwhelmed with how do I replace a liturgical calendar from scratch, it, we have to remember that these religions who are doing that have been around for thousands of years. And we really just have to start, just start with one thing that your children will remember you doing that maybe they'll participate with, or maybe it's something you do by yourself that you do once a week or once a month or once a year um, to kind of start your own kind of heartbeat 
rituals and uh, rituals are often called the heartbeat of our life. It just kind of gives us a rhythm to our lives. Yeah. When you look at the system that you and I came from, um, you know, once a month, it gave everyone a chance to share their experience with each other. Uh, Once a month, it called on us to be reflective of the things we took into our body as food. And it told and it asked us to be reflective of the suffering in the world and to set some money aside to try to help those folks. Right. It uh, on a regular basis, it directed us to do things that wouldn't have come naturally to us that would be helpful to ourselves or to others. And, you know, the example he said about looking at the moon, I mean, my wife and I have this thing we do in the spring and in the fall when the weather's nice. Uh, Cause here in Southern Utah, it gets up to about 113 degrees or so 110 degrees in the summer. We'll go out in these cool evenings and we'll lay on our trampoline, put some, uh, some pillows out, some blankets out, and we'll lay out there and just look up at the stars for about an hour, hour and a half and just stare at the sky. And uh, there, there isn't a ritual in our world that makes us do that. Um, but we've chosen to, to do it and it's benefited us. We, the conversations we have, the awareness of how just incredibly large this whole thing is and how small we are. And again, the fact that we're alone and interconnected and uh, miraculous all at the same time, those things hold value. They carry forward beyond that night. And uh, as Elena is saying here that there's got to, we've got to come up with ways to redirect our, our humans attention our the attention of our collective humanity towards bigger things that, that help us to, be aware and be open to being something more than what we are in this moment. Yeah. And I just want to address this one comment um, who says we already have pagan holidays. And that's really interesting because one of the things that I don't think he does it in this Ted talk, but I've, I've listened to this guy a lot because he has a lot to say about this. And um, he talks about how uh, what Christianity did is they took paganism, which was working And they kind of just kind of put Christianity on top of it. So they say, oh, you do a tree thing. That's great. The tree now means Jesus somehow. Right. And so what Christianity did is it took what was what was working in paganism and it put its messages on top of it. And so we get this kind of mixed pagan Christian Christmas kind of thing. Right. And so what uh, he's trying to do is do the same thing, but in reverse. So let's take all the good stuff. But let's let's um, let's take out the messages that got put in there that we just can't believe anymore as modern secular people. But let's take the good stuff that's working. Um, And like you say, spending time with a loved one, looking at the stars and the moon could be a really transcendent, powerful experience. It's something we should all do. I would love if there was a day of atheists or day of Mormon discussion listeners or whatever the community was that says on this day, we're going to wear this kind of clothes and we're all going to go look at the stars and we're going to talk about it. I would love that, but we don't have that. And it's something that we're still trying to figure out how to build. And we're all, there are pioneers in this space, but nobody knows quite how to do this yet. Just a side point. We may discover if we fast forward a thousand years into the future, we may discover that if we're not able to do this, that we actually lost more than we gained by discarding Mm. religion. Such and, a good point. Yeah. And so folks need to be aware, like, yes, these stories are fiction. And these people who claim to know how to get back to God and who God is, they missed the mark. 
but religion was doing something that also added functionality to society. And if we don't come up with these solutions, if somebody doesn't sit down and look, we've got to create a secular agnostic approach to humanity into the universe at large. And we've got to work in new rituals and new concepts and new reminders. And if we don't do that, we may find ourselves having lost something significant into the future. Yeah, that's such a good point. Okay, you ready to continue? Yep. The other thing that religions are really aware of is speak well. I'm not doing a very good job of this here, but oratory. Oratory is absolutely key to religions. You know, in the secular world, you can come through the university system and be a lousy speaker and still have a great career. But the religious world doesn't think that way. What you're saying needs to be backed up by a really convincing way of saying it. I love this one. So uh, this is part of the transcendent. And one of my favorite quotes from Richard Dawkins is not really about science. It's about this. um, Richard Dawkins, probably the most strong atheist voice that we have out there, right? And every Christmas, he goes into a church and he sings Christmas carols. And I think that that is amazing. This is the most atheist, most materialistic worldview person that I know. And what he says is that there is nothing in the secular world that replaces what it feels like to go to an old chapel at Christmas time and sing these songs that I remember singing as a child with my family and their family and their family. And there's a power in it and there's a transcendence in it and there's a beauty in it. And there's nothing that we have to replace that. And so whenever someone says, you know, I can't touch it because it's a church and I'm atheist, Richard Dawkins does, right? And so how do we experience something together? How do we sing together? And in fact, there was this one study that I read that talked about how rave culture, one of the reasons that rave culture became so popular is that, uh, you know, in early American history, we were very, um, you know, people would have these experiences where it's like they had the spirit in them and they would take over their body and like these really, really intense, powerful kind of experiences in community and people are yelling and people are praising and people are singing and it's it's powerful for our bodies it's really powerful and as that goes away because we can't maybe believe angels and demons and some of these things anymore where do we get to do that and in some ways rave culture especially when you take something like ecstasy that makes you feel really connected to people and you dance and sing with people. It was kind of fulfilling this thing that we used to do in religion that we don't do anymore. And I thought that was really interesting. And the way I experience this now is I love my husband and I love soccer and I love learning like the chants and the songs Um, and we'll go and there'll be a drummer and like, we're all cheering and we're all singing whatever the song is And I love it. It feels really good in your body, right? To just gather and just be rooting for some team in some game. But because it's just soccer and nobody's making me believe anything supernatural, I can do it, right? And so how do we kind of access the transcendent together? And, um, you know, we have this in rave culture and sports games, but how do we do this for things that we actually really love and believe that may be even bigger than sports? There's something else that happens too. When you're with a group of people and something is taught that is, or said that is powerful. And not only do you feel this 
collective euphoric feeling as you're pointing out you know you if you've ever been part of a baseball game or a sports game and everybody's cheering at the same time you, you just get excited about what's going on and you do feel connected with everybody else but there's something else that happens too which is you kind of feel the collective agreement so i come into a space with my own personal opinion about how the world works and what my own expectations about how I and others are going to show up. When I'm in a room full of people there and this person speaking says something that agrees with me or disagrees with me, I get to tell by the collective group, whether we are all going to agree to collectively hallucinate that that is true or it's not. And it gives me a sounding board for knowing whether my, opinion or perspective is isolated and only me or whether it is welcomed adopted agreed upon by the entire group and there are ways in which that mechanism helps us to sort out how we want to be or not be for instance as we started off the conversation talking about the chris rock and will smith thing um by my ability to listen to other people and to hear collective voices on one side or the other I begin to sense whether my perspective fits somewhere in that middle, whether it's on a far extreme. And if it is in a far extreme, is my opinion data-based or is my opinion just something I, I gravitated towards because someone taught me it years ago and, and maybe I need to let go of it. And so being in groups where there's rah-rahs happening, there is some value. Again, it, sometimes it's not. Sometimes you are taught to believe something that you don't realize is just this fringe group that believes it. So it can be harmful too. But it is a mechanism that helps us to see whether we're the only ones in the room that think something. That's such an interesting point and one that I didn't think of. And I think one of the reasons that he's talking about African-American churches is because they do have this history because of slavery of call and response, right? And so you see this with preachers, there's a there's a call or a statement being made and there's a response. And like you're saying, it becomes its own kind of collective way of what is true, what is the common denominator of all of us and what can we unite as a community as true? And they can build that in real time, which is really cool. Um, but as you say, it's also really powerful. And so if you mix in, doctrines there and put a child in that in that environment it's powerful enough that you know you will receive these doctrines that maybe we now think are damaging because this tool is so useful and so it's it's a useful tool but in that way it's also dangerous too so yeah. super interesting point mike is saying here is there something someone that are taking this good stuff that's working now and retooling it today i think as you and I are pointing out, I think there's people all over the planet who are doing it with an issue here or an issue there, a topic here, a topic there. But what you and I are suggesting is that we need to come up with something that a significant portion of humanity will gravitate towards. And even if they, even if it looks different in different places, that it essentially accomplishes the same thing, right? Whether you go to the Methodist church or whether you go to the Baptist church, these are the general things you're going to get in both places. We We need to come up with a a place that we kind of put all these resources in one place and people can begin to create rituals, which we'll get to in a moment, rituals, uh, the education, the kinds of technology that a, a society needs from generation to generation, uh, self-reflection, reflection on uh, the suffering of others. Again, it, the list is a thousand things long and religion accomplishes it because it's had so much time to do it. And 
I think my answer to Mike is that nobody's really working on, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Britt, nobody's really working on this for collective society. Yeah. So I would say the closest is maybe UU, United Universalists, because they um, definitely have open doors and are doing really beautiful work, but still maintaining some sense of community and ritual. Um, and so UU is, is doing that fairly well. We're going to have a guest on in a couple weeks who has created a system like this. And we're going to pick his brain and see how that looks. And then another thing um, that I want to talk about, and it has to deal with this comment here too, is that um, this comment says, I want to connect with all the people, but I don't want to involve and commit myself in an organization. It may be possible that our generation, me and Bill and all these other people working on it, were so triggered by religion because it's what we were raised in that we want to kind of do it, but we also have all these triggers. Oh, that looks like tithing or, oh, that looks like a preacher. Or, oh, that looks like an organization. And I have all these negative experiences with that. And so it might be possible, and I've heard this before, that our generation may be too triggered to actually pull this off. And it may be something that we kind of have to pass down to the next generation and say, uh, here's, here's what we know and here's what we've learned but we're too triggered as a generation to kind of pull this off and you guys have to be more innovative than we could be in doing something like this. So it may be possible that we're not even the best generation to do this because in some ways, the people who are doing secular spirituality are also people who are really triggered by religion um, because it's really unlikely that they're secular spiritual people because their parents were also secular spiritual people. That's a very rare story. Um, and so maybe it's something that we just have to, as someone mentioned earlier, kind of have generational patience with, and maybe our point in that story is processing some of that pain and trying to pass down the best resources we can, and hopefully other generations will do better. Yeah, you're right. Like there's so much that would need to be taught. And yet every single, at every single twist and turn, there would have to be checks and balances in place to ensure that no one's getting rich off of it. No one's getting uh, more power than somebody else because there are certain facets that would be central to this working uh, and not just turning into another religion. Um, and it would take, I think it would take uh, one of these kinds of things where you create a sort of living document or living website and you allow everyone to have some input. And there's a, you know, a large number of people who kind of moderate that to make sure that no one's sabotaging it. Um, and it, it to me would be uh, a lifetime worth of work for a thousand different people. Okay, you ready to continue? What religions know is we're not just brains. We are also bodies. And when they teach us a lesson, they do it via the body. Okay, so using the body. Something that we're learning is that religions for thousands of years have used our bodies to teach certain principles. So instead of just you know, learning about something like baptism, you actually go down into the water. There's in most uh, religions, there's rituals around water. There's rituals around fire. Um, there's rituals around seasons um, to get kind of our body involved with this process. And so when we kind of early secularized, we thought, oh, we don't need that. We're rational brains. We're like computers, right? And then now we're actually learning, oh, religion had something right apparently we hold a lot of this in our bodies 
And that's when we have these books like The Body Keeps Score, um, where we're learning just how much um, emotions and trauma and all these things really get stuck in our bodies and our bodies have to be part of this process. And so it's just another one of these places where religion had something right, but because they said something like, oh, only our baptism works or whatever the stipulations around baptism, we, we said, oh, that's hokey. We're just going to think our way through this. And then we're realizing, oh, we actually have to make rituals that use our body or else things get kind of stuck in our bodies. And so what I really love is um, when we talk about Christianity, and this, this may sound offensive, but I'm not trying to make it offensive. Christianity is a religion of how to process shame and guilt. And they do that through human sacrifice, which is probably the oldest tool that we have. So religion, we can tell religions kind of picked up when we became smart enough to realize that we were going to die. But religion, but religious um, rituals um, really came up when we had to process guilt and shame in our communities. And one of the ways that we did that, um, and this is kind of all cultures across across time, this isn't just one culture, is we'd kind of put our collective guilt and shame onto a thing and then we'd kill it. And that was how we process something. We shouldn't have done this or this. We did something wrong. And Christianity does, does the that gods. today, right? And Christianity does that today, right? Right, we stick but it we on put Jesus. All, yeah, we put, but the roots of it is we put all the guilt and shame on this virgin and we threw the virgin into the volcano. Like that's yeah. a real thing that we really, really did. And so um, now we have to, so we're, we're stepping back from that. We're not throwing virgins into volcanoes. Christianity still does this, uh, but instead of continuing that human sacrifice, you know, it ended up with, with just one sacrifice, but it's still trying to process how do I, how do I get this guilt and this icky feeling out of my body so I can, so I can continue being a functional human? That's the question that it's answering, right? And so the question is, so how do we process guilt and shame now? And some of that is, is really working through it through your body and learning how to do that. Now, luckily now we have books like The Body Can Keep Score and Brene Brown and guided meditations that do um, body scans, right, to help us with this process. Walking meditations are actually really powerful for your body, all these kinds of things. Um, but we have to remember that we're, you know, we went from putting virgins in volcanoes to then just doing Jesus and doing that. And now we have to do the next version of processing guilt and shame, which is how do we do this without having to kill anything? How do we do this by just working through these emotions in our own body? And religion has a lot of tools for how to um, work with your body. So I don't particularly believe that a certain baptism is going to get you into heaven, but once in a while, especially if it's like a cold lake, I'll submerge myself and want to maybe let something in me die so that something else in me can come to life. And I'll actually do it with my body. I'll go into the ocean or somewhere and just kind of do it by myself. Now, it doesn't mean I'm going to get into heaven or any of those things, but it's actually really powerful to use your body in some of these things. And religions have been doing this for thousands of years, and they have a lot of good tools that we can steal from. 
When when I did I did ayahuasca once and we had a shaman, there were 14 of us, we sat in a room. He handed out the medicine, had a bunch of rituals. I, I as a side note, we asked him, we said, you know, what are these rituals for? What do these things do? And he said, I don't know. Like this is just the ritual. This is the job of the ritual is to have you believe that something exciting is going to happen, right? You're about to enter a new space. It was kind of getting you into that mindset. But he admitted, like, I don't know what these rituals do. They're just rituals. Like, it's up to you. You decide what they do. And uh, he kept reiterating that the medicine was a teacher. And the second night, I take the ayahuasca. An hour later, I am blasted off to another planet. And as I'm having the experience, I am transported. I'm still me, but I'm also sharing my consciousness with an ancient ancestor who is closer to a primate than, than a human. And as I go through the evening, I am learning. I, 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 these thoughts weren't in my head to begin with. I, I was learning how ritual is created. I was learning why we have sacred rites. I was um, very much um, impressed with what those things accomplished. So I understood in that moment that there were going to be fractures in our tribe, you know, Gary was going to kill Jim in a fight and all of us were going to be disappointed in that. And so for us to get together once a year and have a ritual where we, we remember it and then set it off to the side and we forgive each other and we move on. Like every tribe, every society needs ways in which the things that brushed up against us during the course of a year that we just can't get over we need rituals and rites in place in order to confront those things and to forgive and to move on from them. And rituals really do serve that purpose. And when you grasp that we need mechanisms in order to encourage us to collectively do these things, you can begin to understand why it's in, why religion served a purpose and what use it could still have today if we can find a healthy way to keep those mechanisms um, embedded. Mm, such good points. I could talk all day on that. You really hit on some good things. Um, your medicine must have taught you some really cool stuff. Um, I yeah. am reminded there is this monkey. I don't know what kind of monkey it is, but when one monkey like bites another monkey too hard and they have to say sorry, they'll go steal a baby and then hand like just one some mother's baby in the monkey tribe. And they'll take the baby and give it to the other kind of male monkey to say, I'm sorry. And then that monkey takes the monkey takes the baby back to the mom. And so they have this like ritual built in of like, oh, that looks like it hurt. I'm sorry, where they literally like steal a baby and offer the baby. And that's literally this monkey track, like this monkey species. That's how they process. They feel bad. Oh, it looks like I hurt you, right? It's so interesting. Um, that night was magical, by the way. I learned for the first time, the medicine taught me the stoned ape theory that apes or primates came in contact with conscious altering drugs and it uh, enlarged their consciousness. So I woke up the next morning thinking I had a new idea only to learn that Terrence McKenna had already invented the stone ape theory. And I was, <laughs> the medicine taught me something, but it was decades too late. <laughs> <laughs> well, decades too late to be famous for it, but still yeah. good, but still, still good useful. For you. And yeah. for people who are listening, we will do a psychedelic e episode and talk about all that someday cool. let's do all it. right keep going all right art now 
it's trying to remind you of what there is to love. And secondly, it's trying to remind you of what there is to fear and to hate. And that's what art is. Art is a visceral encounter with the most important ideas of your faith. What you're trying to imbibe, what you're imbibing is through your eyes, through your senses, truths that have otherwise come to you through your mind. What you're trying to imbibe, what you're imbibing is through your eyes, through your senses, truths that have otherwise come to you through your mind. Art should be one of the tools by which we improve our society. Art should be didactic. Hmm, so interesting. So this reminds me of, um, it was on my bucket list, my husband knew this, to go to Florence to go to the Sistine Chapel. And I remember going and um, it was so interesting to to walk in and and um, I'm looking up at all this, uh, all these views of creation. And then when you walk to the end of the cathedral, it has the, the resurrection picture where there's Christ and with one hand he's pointing up and with the other he's pointing at a scar and pushing down and there's people that are going up and people that are going down and i just imagine how powerful it would have been as like a medieval person you know without any books to walk in and see creation and see this is an artist's representation of why we're here and what this is all for which is what we're trying to answer as humans and then you know at the end of this walkway is this picture of, and Jesus is coming and how's your behavior lately, right? And you kind of have this moment where you're checking in with yourself because some people are going up and some people like have this look of regret on their face and know that they should have done better. And it's so powerful. And then I'm there with all these other people from around the world. And this is a thousand years after it was painted. And, um, and we're still gathering to kind of experience this thing, this, this, whether or not we believe it or not, this was a person who was able to paint an art and you know answer some of these big questions about what does it mean that we're here and why are we here and where are we going and what does it mean to have the good life and we're experiencing it through art and it was just it was just so powerful um, and I wish there were you know places you know if there was a you know I've been to the Boise Art Museum and and like he says it's like you kind of walk in and just kind of say I don't really know what this is or what it's supposed to be or what it's supposed to represent and um it can be hard to feel like you have that kind of experience but I would love a place where you could have that kind of experience in society without it half having to be related to having to believe something yeah, yeah. I'm just seeing, by the way, we're getting a few stream issues. I guess there was something with we, us using too much of that video that they kicked it off the YouTube, but I went into YouTube. It doesn't seem like there's any penalty or anything. So um, in terms of art, I mean, man, poetry, right? Scriptures are full of poetry, um, full of, I'm not really a, a, a studier of poetry to know the different kinds of poetry, but there's multiple kinds that are found in scriptural canon. There are there are ways that language is being used as metaphors and analogies. And th there just is beautiful types of uh, language uh, strategies used throughout scriptures that are attractive to us, that we, that we gravitate towards. And um, religion, you know, whether it's stained glass windows, whether it's... Uh, a painting. I remember my wife and I, we got married in Washington, DC to the system within the system you and I are both from and a famous artist within that system had a, had a little fireside there and, and showed off paintings. They were all religious paintings, religious parts of our story. 
and the paintings were gorgeous. And I felt very connected to the history of what had happened in our faith. Um, art has a way of connecting us. And as he points out, like this idea that we sometimes don't know the meaning and religion kind of does tell us the meaning. And maybe we, maybe sometimes telling us the meaning is the better thing. Yeah. Or at least, you know, talking about what, you know, what, what it's trying to represent so that we can know this feeling, what we're learning from it, what we're learning about humanity from it. And for you, um, I really, whenever I think of, you know, when we're talking about music, we talk about your reggae music because for whatever reason, it just really speaks to you. It's part of you. It's part of you experiencing what it's like to be human is that music. Um, and so I think that that's part of your spiritual life too, is, is these truths that come up in especially reggae music for you. Would you say that's true? Amen. Yeah. Like, um, but tying it back into church, there were times that we sat and we sang a hymn together and we all just felt like, yeah, like, like this, this is right. This is good. This is where we all should, should be at this moment is singing this song. It really does connect each of us. And reggae certainly does that for me. I'll just simply say if people, people are interested, they should go check out Dirty Heads. <laughs> okay. Yeah. For me, my spirituality is punk rock. You know, I got to mm. somehow stick it to the man. That's part of my spirituality. So I'm just going to stick with my punk rock. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. And music facilitates a mood. My wife, there are times where she will just listen to what I call sad music, right? Like, and I say, babe, I don't get it. Like, that can't be helpful. And she goes, actually, it is. Like, it's helpful to sit and to listen to an artist create music about their hard times. And now I'm not alone. I'm, I'm having my hard time. That's similar. Mm. Um, so what, she'll what, cater her music to her mood. What uh, Enneagram is Amanda? Do you know? Amanda is, I believe a seven on the Enneagram. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, so anyway, she yes. likes to have fun. She is. Yeah. She's a little, she's fun and, um, she can be high energy and, and, and a little bit of intensity, you know, and, uh, and I'm much more like, let's just, let's just calm down and like, let's see what's going on here. Let's so, but I have my moments. Yeah. We'll do it. We'll do an Enneagram dive at some point too. Cause Ooh, I'm it. a, I'm a four with a mm. five wing. So four is Four's like my, yeah. And like kind Creator. of mo moody and melancholy and mm -hmm. what's the meaning of life kind of stuff. And then my five wing is like an intellect. And so I tell people, you know, my Enneagram is like, I like to think deeply about really sad things. You know, that's just as a four with a five wing, I just want to think deeply about things that are so depressing and sad. Mm. <laughs> that just makes sense to me. <laughs> Love it. We'll dive yeah, we'll into that to. in the future. So Love can it. we play more of this video or? Here we go. Okay. So uh, religions are the foremost example of an institution that is fighting for the things of the mind. Now, we may not agree with what religions are trying to teach us, but we can admire the institutional way in which they're doing it. Books alone, books written by lone individuals are not going to change anything. We need to group together. If you want to change the world, you have to group together. You have to be collaborative. And that's what uh, uh, religions do. So I, interesting yeah. there. So you know, how do we restructure society after this kind of massive deconstruction? Because we have to remember that we're not just deconstructing our particular brand of Christianity. Um, we're, re we're, we're deconstructing quite a bit. This is called the postmodern, you know, in philosophy, we call this age that we're in now the post postmodernism age, which is, you know, postmodernism is this idea that 
there isn't truth. There's just really powerful. All these narratives have power associated with it. And then now that we've kind of all realized that, oh, maybe there's not, you know, one true way and we're deconstructing all these massive institutions, religion included, how do we restructure society? And again, one of these problems that we've talked about is, is if you fear hell and you want to go to a temple and so you give 10% of your money, that's a really powerful motivator. But then if you're trying to restructure society and gather a community, well, you don't really want to pay tithing anymore. You don't feel like you have to, and you don't really, you feel uncomfortable with people making money in spirituality anyway, because it feels like a cult. Now the people who are doing the best spiritual work in the world aren't getting paid for it, have no way of rising up and building communities, which they should be, if, if it was a corporation, they would be able to do. But because they're selling the good life instead of selling cars, we don't want to give them any money. And so how do we flip this on its head and start to restructure society and actually give money to people who are actually changing the world, who are actually um, have a voice that we really appreciate or making communities in our local community that is helpful? And how do we make sure that they're getting resources? Because um, if we expect cults and consumerism to all have, you know, and religions all to have billions of dollars, but then people doing work that we really admire, we don't give them anything. How can they possibly compete in this world? It's, yeah, it's and, a problem. Yeah. And, and as they're pointing out here, one of the big aspects of what religion does is it has us collaborate. It has us work together. It has us uh, hold hands and join in a common cause. And myth does that. I mean, you look around on a battlefield and you can be next to a guy uh, with the same uniform on as you that you've never met in your entire life and a guy across from you who has a different uniform on and just the uniform alone tells you everything you need to know about what what's going to happen in the next few moments. Um, it teaches you who to trust, who to work with. And, and that's what myth does. Myth, at least in part, um, calls on us to understand what symbols mean that we all collectively agree on so that we can, uh, work together knowing that whatever that symbol is, at least generally, it means the same thing for both of us. You're muted. Yeah. And uh, myth is super powerful. It's something that he didn't have time to bring up in this TED discussion, but I, I know you wanted to bring up as one of these things that religion does that is helpful. And it's really um, common for post-religious people to look at all myth is bad. Like I just am a reason science person. I don't do any myth. And then you realize that, you know, there's so much in our life that that is a myth. You know, the idea that this piece of paper that's green has any value in this world is because you and I both imagined that this dollar has a value. And it what's it's what really separates us from, you know, our Neanderthal past and other animal species is that we're able to imagine things together. And that's what is enabling us to have these big human societies that animals are not able to do is because we're able to say, you know, this dollar, you know, if you tracked a dollar from my taxes, let's say, and it actually went to Washington, D.C. for some um, free lunch for a poor student who's in third grade in Washington, D.C., the fact that we can pull that off, people don't realize that's amazing. That's amazing that we can pull off a myth that big that my dollar, if you track it, went to that kid that I don't know in third grade who 
didn't have a steady lunch at home and so gets it at school. That's amazing. You know, yeah. there's so we always talk about myth as if it's a bad thing because, you know, this, why do I have to believe in Zeus and all this kind of stuff? But there's so many things that about about myth that is good, you know, and even our, our idea of what is America or what, um, yeah, just what is money, just all these things are, are myths that we create. And so rather than put it down and say, oh, I don't do any myth at all, part of our um, beauty of being human is getting to imagine things together and create it, like go towards that direction. That's one of the really beautiful things about being human. So now we have to create myths for in the post-religious world. What do we want to go towards? What what What's the dream? What's the heaven? What's the Zion? Let's imagine it together and go about the work of trying to create it. We don't have to put that down um, just because we use the word myth. Um, using imagination to build towards something is one of the things that we can do really well as humans and it's powerful. So we have to rebrand myth as something, as a tool that we can use to build post-religious secular societies. Yeah. And just FYI, it, the listeners are saying that if we keep playing it, it'll just keep cutting out on YouTube, which we, no big deal. Like we have it in other places as well. So um, do you want to continue with the video? Do you want to try to synopsize kind of the ending? It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, we can just, we can just, there was only a, a short bit left. So the, yeah. the end of the video just said that religions have lasted this long for a reason. And whenever we have to look at something that humans do that last the course of time, um, it's, it, it, it lasted for a reason. And so yeah. we have to appreciate that ritual calendars, what to do with when someone dies. That's another thing that um, we didn't have time to go into when someone dies, it's such a shock to your system. And the beautiful thing that religion does um, I'm going to pick on Judaism again, just because they do some of these things so well is what, what Jews will do is when, when someone dies, um, the, the family and the community take over kind of what you have your job, whatever your job was. Okay. So you take time off. They know what to sing and how to dress and how to do the funeral. So you don't have to think about it just steps in and does it. And then the cool thing that they do is, is for the week after someone in your close family dies, if someone comes to your house, you don't have to say anything. So if my husband died and you came over to visit me, you'd bring me food, you'd help with the chores. And if I didn't say, hello, Bill, I wouldn't actually have to talk. It's not, it's not, I don't have to talk. I don't have to say anything. So I may sit in silence because I don't want to talk, but people still come and visit me, which I think is really beautiful. And then after that one week, you go into kind of like part-time morning, which is I'm going to come back to my job, but only half time. And the community will just know, oh, her husband died. So she's, she's not going to stay for, for very long, or she's not going to go to this party because she's still in mourning. And then, you know, a month and a half later, you're kind of expected to come back into the society. And so what religion has done in this sense is that there's someone there who's gone through the shock of a death. And the community has decided, okay, we're gonna pull, we're gonna pull your weight, and we're gonna be here for you in all these ways, so you don't have to think about these things, and we're gonna help you mourn. And then, when it's probably been long enough that you need to re-enter society, we're gonna kind of invite you to come back to the world so that you don't stay in that mourning place. And it's really beautiful. And so, if we leave all that, 
you know, then I, I meet with clients all the time who, I, you know, I recently left and now I need to mourn my dad because I never really did that because I just kind of imagined that he was in heaven and now I have to re-mourn my dad. So religions do ritual, calendars, death, moral education, art, music, community, service, meaning, processing, emotion, story, and myth. And if we throw that all away and just say, I don't need any of that, I think we are missing something. And so that's what we're trying to do on this podcast. And that's what I love about these conversations is how do we pull that out in a way that doesn't make us believe things that we can't believe. Yeah. There was a time a long, long time ago when the other primates and us had a common ancestor. And when that split happened, us, whatever became human, we would sit around the fire, we would dance, we would sing, um, and as we evolved, as we became more and more human, as we invented language, as we um, invented processes by which to deal with life as it was happening in front of us, we needed a way to transfer those skills. We needed a way to transfer processes that we would learn who was the best hunter and who was the best gatherer. We had to have processes to learn to forgive each other and processes to um learn when to call someone out and when not to, when to go to war and when not to. And if we stayed on one side of the, of the forest and the, our enemy stayed on the other or our friends stayed on the other, we needed stories to tell us who they were so that when we ran into them again, we would know what to expect or what, what had happened the last time. And the way we did that was through narrative and narrative will die. If it's not embedded in a story that is held appreciated and perpetuated by the tribe. And so you were mentioning before that I should spend a few minutes going into it. Sapiens with Yuval Harari um, goes over this concept in depth and to the point where a little tiny tribe of 10 to 20 people were so intimate with each other. We sat around the campfires, we hunted together, we gathered together. We knew exactly what our skill sets were. We knew who could be trusted to catch the, the animal and who should not go on the hunting trip because they'll put the rest of us in danger, right? We knew who could gather the fruits knowing which ones didn't poison us. And we knew which people not to have gather because they just didn't care enough to be, to be particular. And, um, but at some point, bigger tribes always kill smaller tribes. So now there's a tribe of 40 and what gets a tribe of 40 to work together is a human invention called gossip. So now I, I was telling David Peck this morning, I know Brittany Hartley, but I don't know David Peck, but thankfully Brittany Hartney knows David Peck and she can tell me about him. She can tell me his strengths and his weaknesses. Again, gossip in the modern age, we consider bad, but at one time gossip is what allowed humans to survive. It was, it was a human invention that probably saved the human race uh, at some point. And, and we don't recognize it for that. So now we're in a bigger group, 40 people, 50 people, 70 people. And they say you can get up to about 120 to 150 on gossip alone. But again, bigger tribes kill smaller tribes. And if you want to be the top tribe, you want to be the king of the hill, you got to be the biggest tribe with the most uh, skill set. And the easiest way to do that is to tell a myth so we, in not only did we invent gossip, but we invented story. And when us humans invented story, we were able to embed all the important things of our tribe and our society into those stories. And we were able to convey all the skills that were needed through the stories we told that would allow our tribe to pass on superior skills and knowledge. And I know that our tribe was superior because you and I are here. Um, 
Other tribes got killed and our tribe lived because they were able to embed more important things, uh, a higher number of things in the stories that they told. And myth is the best way to do that. And so it's easy on 2022 to look back at all of myth and go, man, it's all bullshit. Forget all of it. Let's just cast it aside and let's just live our lives. But the reality is that we still need myth, just like we need a public school system to embed important truths for our society in so that we can utilize them from generation to generation. And uh, so discarding myth as uh, nonsense, whether it's the Bhagavad Gita, whether it's the Book of Mormon, whether it's the Quran, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, or a million other books that have existed over the course of humanity uh, that have held those stories. And even today, we go to the movie theater. I went last night and saw uh, Batman, the new Batman movie. I know it's not real. But in that story is good and evil, right and wrong, hard truths and things that I need to wrestle with. And, and so uh, even today we use myth to kind of help us as a society. So anyway, there's some some rambling thoughts. So great. <clears throat> as a side note, I'm really looking forward to seeing Batman because Robert Pattinson is my hall pass. Chad knows. So if that ever happens, you know, if he's just wandering around Boise, Idaho, Looking for a mom of four, Chad knows that he's my hall pass. Anyway, <clears throat> what I really – oh, sorry, you're on mute. I was going to say that mine's Meg Ryan and Helen Hunt, but they're not in Batman. Meg Ryan and Helen Hunt, those are two different kind of types. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. okay. All right. Um, oh, it's so good. So what I really loved about what you talked about is that people underestimate how, you know, some people – who are in the post-religious world will talk about, oh, you know, this man created this religion and um, to control me and now I'm free. And what we don't realize is that this was built into the human system. It's really built into our bodies. When someone makes fun of you or doesn't like you and it feels like you're going to die and you feel really anxious and you don't like that feeling, it's because for a long time, people in your tribe, if you're in a tribe of 30 and everyone in the tribe didn't like you, that was dangerous. You could die if you get kicked out of that cave. And so it's built into our bodies that, wow, that feels like I'm going to die because this person hates me or whatever. And then with myth, you know, we look down on myth and how we don't need any of that, but we don't realize that it's just built into what it means to be human. It's built into our bodies. It's built into our brains. And so the best thing that we can do is be aware of it and kind of focus it in the right direction. Because what I see happen, and I, I brought this up in a in a Facebook discussion group for people who um, who like to do that kind of thing. Sometimes I, I have tabs on certain Facebook groups just because I want to see what the conversation is. Um, but I brought this up and it was quite offensive to a lot of people. So I'm, I'm going to try to do this delicately, but what happens sometimes after you leave kind of an organized religion is that you'll have something called rebound spirituality, because what happens is when you're in chaos, when you don't know anything, because you've just deconstructed your entire view of reality, our brains really don't like that. Our brains crave order and structure because chaos is really scary. And so often what happens is what's called rebound spirituality where, <clears throat> and I see this all the time and I don't mean to be offensive because I have a lot of friends in my life who are of the mystic persuasion that I really admire and I really love. Um, but 
I was thinking of this girl who um, she she deconstructed from religion and said, I'm free and all this kind of thing. And and I'm looking at Joseph Smith and it's not lining up. It doesn't make sense. So now I'm free. And then she, you know, gets into universe numerology, the secret kind of stuff. And for a couple of days, you know, she looked at the clock and it said 1111. So she got it tattooed in her arm because 1111 means that the universe is telling you that everything's going to be okay. Right. And so I'm sitting there and I'm watching this and I'm saying, okay, like you're having intellectual issues with this organized religion, but then you jump straight into the universe is getting you, giving you messages into your microwave. And that's not necessarily that much more rational, but what happened. And so we have to realize that our desire to cling to some kind of order, some kind of story, some kind of myth, some kind of community, that desire is so strong that we just have to direct it intentionally towards good things or else we'll find ourselves kind of jumping from one sense of order to another. So I've seen people go from, I was a Mormon and then I'm a, I was a fundamentalist Christian and then I was a humanist and I just went full in on that. And then now I'm full into energy work and now I do tarot cards and they're just jumping from one order to the next. And then it keeps failing them because they've never really dug into what this process of what it means to be human, that this is built into our system and maybe directing that into a more stable way instead of jumping from system to system. Anyway, if that makes sense. Mm, it does. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious how this will all unfold. I'm curious over the next hundred years. Cause I don't think very much progress. Will, I think that's a short amount of time in the scope of humanity maybe 500 years, maybe a thousand years, yeah. but it, that's but somebody... the only, I know, but that's the only sad thing about like mortality. I feel like I've really accepted the fact that I'm going to die and I've made peace with it and I don't really experience any anxiety about it, but I'm genuinely sad that this story that we're a part of you and I won't get to see the chapters that come after us. That's the yeah. only part that still makes me sad. It is sad. That's, it is sad. Um, but there's no doubt that we will, if we're given enough time, do something because religions are constantly being invented, right? Even even in the last hundred years, two hundred years, there have been multiple religions that have started. Um, it, it will be interesting to see how the secular world goes. Look, we finally all agree these tools are necessary. Let's start putting it together. And my gut is, just like there's a million religions, my gut is that in time there will be a hundred different. Uh, comprehensive approaches to trying to convey the right things about human humanity in the universe onto the next generation in a collaborative effort. Yeah. So, I think, yeah. I think a problem that America is going to have that not every country is going to have to face, especially Western Europe. And I've heard, I've heard this from people who do, you know, who will speak in like Elaine de Baton, he'll speak in Europe and he'll speak in, in America is that because, um, conservative religion really got in bed with conservative politics. Um, we have this thing now where political parties are kind of replacing religions. And so if you're a conservative member, that's an, that, I mean, that will cover what your morals are and what your values are. Um, who are the kind of people that are in, who are the kind of people that are out, what you say, who the prophets are, you know, we listen to Tucker Carlson or we listen to Bill Maher, you know, 
And so the danger that we have in America is that because our political parties are part of a religious dialogue, now we have political parties acting like religions. And so we've seen this in the youth where I have nothing against Black Lives Matter. I think it's an amazing thing. But for some youth, it becomes essentially their new religious identity, their new identity. And the problem with politics becoming your identity is what happens when it gets better? Oh, well, it can never get better because it's my identity that Black people are always treated X way or whatever. And um, anyway, so we do have a problem in America that's slowing this down, which is that part of this religious conversation that we're having now has politics mixed in. And so it now it's a right versus left kind of thing, which it just it just slows everything down because now we got to mix politics into all of this. And by the way, this comprehensive gathering has the ability to solve those problems. And here's what I mean. Um, at present, religion teaches you to compromise your inner intuition and also to see discomfort as bad and to um, assimilate yourself with others who also think discomfort is bad and uh, who you get to jointly go like, oh, so, you know, God is, God feels this way about gay people. Like here's great. I, now I'm with like-minded folks and I don't have to deal with the discomfort of being wrong. Um, the approach you and I are talking about would do the exact opposite. It would gather the best of ideas about how we treat each other, how we're inclusive, how we respect others' rights. And it would um, convey it in such a way that just as religion does the opposite, we would be collectively pooled towards sitting with our discomfort. We would be collectively pulled to um, making changes, no matter how hard they are, to show up as a better human being, rather than justifying our, you know, our, that our current behavior and feeling the church's permission to go ahead and continue to believe those things that hurt people. Um, it, it would work in a very different way, and I think it would have the potential to solve a lot of the problems that we're dealing with, which gets to your point, which is you wouldn't need a issue to be your religion. Your religion would would suggest you confront all the issues. Yeah, and that kind of – yeah, all the issues, that's such an interesting point because what's, what's funny about um, – political values, because each political party has certain values, is that if you are a conservative, you often don't show the value of compassion because that because that value has been branded leftist. And so you're cutting yourself off from an actual human value because you don't want to seem too leftist. And you'll see this in, in, in uh, discussions uh, with conservative people. They really they really shy away from openly showing compassion because that really actually sounds left wing to us. And the same thing for the left wing, they won't ever show loyalty. So they won't ever show that loyalty is a value. And it is, it is a value. Um, structure and order and loyalty, those are all values, but they can't talk about it because those have been branded values on the right. And so it's it's splitting all of our values in half so that we're never complete people because we only do these values because only these values are safe in this community of people and with these people that we're listening to, right? And so it's just, it's just you know, between religion always trying to pacify us and politics, which is always trying to separate us and separate everything, including values into left and right. And you can't ever, you can't ever do both. 
um, it's tricky. It's tricky out there. There's a lot we'll have to figure out. I think step one is we got to put together a syllabus or a topical guide or some type of here's the hundred chapters. Forget even writing them. Forget who you'll include in them. We got to figure out what the 150 things are that need to be passed on. Uh, and, th and, and trouble is that, as you pointed out earlier, you need a, a liturgical calendar that points you to the moon and you have to implement that into the 150 topics somewhere like there's. It's, it's an overwhelming task. And you and I talked the other day jokingly like, okay, let's just tackle it. Let's do it. You and I. Um, I couldn't then we do got that into in it five lifetimes. Like, no, it's too much work. Yeah. It's, too much, it's too much work for one person to do. Imagine the work that it would take to get all the, let's say, humanists to look at the moon on April 13th. It would be a massive campaign, millions of dollars to try to, to pull it off. And you're doing it with just donations, right? You can't threaten people that they're going to go to hell if you don't, if you don't pay right. up. It's hard. It's yeah. hard work. So we appreciate there's been like 40 listeners listening through this whole almost two hour conversation now. So man, we just really appreciate you being a part of trying to figure this out for our own individual lives and families and the little mini communities that we're a part of. Um, Gosh, we just so appreciate all the people who who have listened and stayed on board for this whole conversation. I had a, I had so much fun. Yeah, and if you want to see more of what we do, if this is your first time listening, check out uh, our uh, YouTube channel, which is under Mormon Discussion Incorporated. That's the entity that runs all of these podcasts and hosts them, I should say. And then also, if you want to see us specifically, go to almostawaken.org. Uh, you can contact us there through the website. Uh, you can also go see all the older episodes. Uh, and if you want to drop a few bucks our way, we appreciate it. Hit the donate button. And for everybody who is donating currently, I think we're already over a thousand bucks for the year, Britt. Mm -hmm. That's pretty amazing. I think we raised 300 bucks last year before you joined up. So, uh, having Brittany on board is really helping us grow. And if you want to drop a few bucks our way, great. And for those who already are donating, thank you very much. It means a lot to us. Um, we're really having a lot of fun putting these uh, episodes together. Yeah, we, we hope that we can continue to have these discussions. Next week, we're going to have Cami Hurst, who's going to talk to us about sex. So we're really excited to have that conversation. Yeah. And uh, we have some really great voices lined up. So please help us by allowing us to do this work that we so enjoy doing. And thank you for everybody who listened. Have a great day, everybody. Bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.